another episode of the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey, but unfortunately he's not able to be with us today. But don't worry, he will be back in a couple weeks. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. But we know that anytime Reformation happens, it's always messy. As Reformation starts happening in the CRC, things are getting messy. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the CRC to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. We want to say thanks to all of you who are faithfully listening each week and faithfully sharing our content. Keep up the good work. And I want to say a special thanks to all of you who have contacted us and emailed us and encouraged us for the work we're doing. It it means a lot to us. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single week. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's show, which is part one of our conversation with Cedric Parcells. Cedric, why don't you kick us off by telling us a little bit about uh, where you're serving in ministry, the church you're at, and then uh, and maybe about your family as well. Yeah, so I'm the solo pastor at Door Christian Reformed Church uh, in Door, Michigan, which is 20 minutes south of Grand Rapids. Uh, church has been around in this neck of the woods since about 1938, and we have about, I would say, 135 members thereabouts uh and um my family i have uh, three daughters i have a wife and three daughters um and their ages are six five and almost three i've got like oh wow a few more days and then she'll be three so it's it's we are very busy at uh, at home i remember that yeah yeah your household probably looks a lot like mine about uh, 12 years ago yeah. I have I have four daughters as well okay. and so but mine are all I've got three teenagers now and uh, my youngest is nine so so idea. yeah we've got busyness too just in a whole different world <laughs> yeah so um how long have you been at your church I've been here seven years uh, just over seven years uh, as my first first call and um Learned a lot uh, over those over these last seven years, and um, well, they're a good group of people, and I've uh, really uh, enjoyed uh, getting to know them and working with them, and and letting them be gracious towards me in terms of the mistakes that I make. So, uh, but it's good. It's been good. Um, yeah, that's how I'm. Yeah. yeah, I I once had an older pastor tell me. Um, you will probably learn more than your congregation does at your first congregation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your, mm-hmm. your first church, you learn more than your congregation does. And I, yeah, that's probably a good reminder yeah. that uh, we're coming in and trying to figure out a lot of stuff at our first church. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, where did you go to seminary? Oh, <clears throat> well, um, that's a little complicated question because uh, I went to Princeton Theological Seminary, but I also 
at the same time did my penance uh, at Calvin Seminary online. So okay, I, yeah. So, you know, depending on how you, oh, and then I guess, and then I just finished my, um, my THM at Calvin Seminary. Uh, so I think I've, you know, I went to both. I went to Princeton yeah. Logical and I went to Calvin. So. Okay, so what drew you to Princeton then? Uh, well, so to tell to explain that story, I have to back up a little bit. So um, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I was uh, from the Episcopal Church, and uh, for the for your Canadian folk, that would mean the Anglican Church in uh, the United States, or at least the the mainline one. Uh, I was talking to a Canadian the other day, and they were like Episcopal Church, like Anglican. They're like, oh, interesting. Um, so I, I make that caveat for, for people now. Um, so I grew up in the Episcopal Church and was planning on going into the Episcopal ministry. And in fact, I spent about six months in the process of, of working through that, uh, getting getting to that to go to seminary. And my bishop uh, here in Western Michigan told me pretty much, I'm paraphrasing just a tad, uh, but he said, you are not allowed to go to any conservative cemetery, cemeteries. Freudian <laughs> 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 uh, slip? I don't know. Um, so he, seminaries, no conservative seminaries. And so, I, so I said, okay. So I, I basically picked the seminary, which I thought was probably one of the more conservative of the mainline uh, denominations. And so I applied and I was accepted, and uh, I got really good financial aid, which is a huge part, uh, and so that's how I ended up uh, going to Princeton. I left the Episcopal Church right after I got, so I grad, I was at Calvin from 2006 to 2010, and that whole time I was really struggling with whether to remain in the Episcopal Church or not, and uh, my wife, my fiance, now wife, um, you know, was helped me to see that, you know, it probably wasn't a good thing for me to still be in the Episcopal Church. So I had built up a pretty good relationship with her pastor, um, Aaron Breesman, who's at North London Christian Reformed Church. And so when I left the Episcopal Church and was sort of homeless, in a sense, um, I, I think there was sort of a natural pull towards the, the Christian Reformed Church. Just, so the Christian Reformed Church definitely had some chips in its favor. Uh, mm -hmm. and uh, points in its favor. So I ended up in the uh, Christian Reformed Church, and I went to the classes, and the classes said to me, um, classes Zealand, which is, uh, well, in Zealand, Michigan, uh, and uh, they asked me a bunch of questions, obviously, and they said, yeah, go go forth, go forth, young man, uh, <laughs> to, to, to that land uh, in New Jersey. And so we did, and... Uh, Obviously, I stayed in touch with them and had to do my EPMC. So that's that's sort of my that's a long winded answer to a very simple question. No, that's good. Well, and I don't think a lot of people realize um, that there are some pretty close um, theological understandings between the Anglican Church and, and the Reformed Church as well, I, I think. As at least I have, I have a friend who who was an Anglican priest for a while, and he said if if you look at and now and then he was ordained in the CRC, yeah. as well. And he said if you look at the thirty nine articles in the Anglican Church, oh, yeah. 
he said, um, I can hold as a Christian reform minister. Now I haven't looked at the 39 articles, but yeah, I'm taking his word on it. Yeah. Um, he said, like, I can hold to those um, as a Christian reform pastor fairly well. They, they line up with our confessions as well. Yeah, very much so. I, you know, I, I had the fort, I had the good fortune, the good providence, however you want to parse that. Uh, I, uh, my church, so I, as I, we said before we started formally talking here, I grew up in Arizona and my priest, um, Father Tom Phillips, he, he had done his ministerial training at Bristol in England. And I think that while he was there, he had J.I. Packer as one of his teachers. Mm. He, I think Packer was at Bristol for a while. I think that's how that happened because um, Packer came down to our church once uh, to give a talk. Uh, and uh, I think he might have even have preached his sermon. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, that was sort of my uh, through Packer, basically, is how I, I got I learned about the whole Reformed faith. Uh, or the Reformed interpretation of the faith, and that's what I started studying the 39 articles too, uh, and yes, I think that your friend is right. I mean, they're going to, obviously, there's going to be differences on the uh, sort of the way we think about the structure of the church, and even a little bit about how church worship should be done, uh, but nevertheless, I mean, when it comes to um, Third nine articles of when it comes to third nine articles, I mean, you've got justification through faith alone. You've got a very reformed doctrine of the Lord's Supper and uh, baptism. Uh, Article seventeen on on predestination. They don't go um, well. It's even debated in our circles about you know to what degree is are the canons of Dort sort of double predestinarian or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, the third nine articles are clearly clearly within that uh, Augustinian strain, uh, strain of, uh, yes, you know, there is election unto eternal life. And, um, and of course, Sola Scriptura was, is a big point there too. Um, yeah. So, um, and technically speaking, you know, hey, before we neutered uh, uh, question and answer 80 on the, on the, on the, on the mass, um, we even had the third nine articles even has something against the Pope. So, I mean, we're really close. Yeah. 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 Yeah, There's just a lot of similarities as I talked to him too. I thought, man, um, it did kind of make sense for him to flow from the Anglican church into the, into the reformed church. Well, a lot of people don't know that the the church of England was very much a reform was considered for a long time, a reformed church. And the people, I mean, you know, King James sent, a bishop and two theologians to the synod of Dort. Um, so they, you know, there was always the, uh, uh, they call it the Calvinist consensus in the literature from about uh, 15, uh, whenever Elizabeth took over the throne to about 1625. There was this whole period where like they were, I think the, there was a, or Sinus's commentary on the catechism was required reading at Oxford University. Hmm. Uh, so uh, that's, that sort of tells you where the church was. And then of course it sort of went off in its own direction. Yeah. That's a, well, that's a long story. It has nothing to do with the Christian reformed church. <laughs> no, well, it, it's good. And, and uh, you kind of segued in because I was curious uh, what your experience was like at Princeton seminary, uh-huh. this, the seminary that for so long was the bulwark of orthodoxy in America. Yeah. And now as, as you, I thought, 
carefully worded it, the more conservative of the liberal. Well, you said mainline, but but you were saying the more conservative of the liberal seminaries. And so I'd just be curious, what was your experience at Princeton? Uh, So I should say that I think just what I've seen and heard. um, I I think that Princeton has changed since I've been there. So (laughs) no one should take this as like my like how it would be now. I think that when I was there, Princeton was sort of a moderately liberal place. Um, it was very, like, I remember the first day we had orientation, obviously, and we all got into the, all the whole, the whole freshman class, whatever you call them, first years are all there. And the teachers are very, like, upfront. They were saying, like, look, we are all universalists here, right? And that's just, I don't, there's, there's no one on the faculty that isn't a universalist as far as this person was concerned. Um, and, and she said, if you disagree with this, that's okay. Right. But we're going to want you to actually have reasons for why you disagree with us. And we want you to participate in, in, in the debate. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the, the tenor I feel of a lot of uh, many of the classes that I took, like it was obvious that the professors and I would say probably the majority of the students sort of came from a more left-leaning direction, um, even, er- even, even, ra- even erratically left-leaning direction. But nevertheless, there was still, um, there was, for the most part, I should say, for the most part, there was a willingness to engage in conversation. Um, I did sort of stick out as an anomaly. <laughs> I think it was, I think it was, uh, um, I think, I think I'd been there like two weeks and somehow or another, I became known as the, as the Calvinist on campus. And, uh, like someone just came up like, Oh, you're Cedric. I heard that you're like a Calvinist. I was like, hi, yes, my name is Cedric. It's nice to meet you too. And uh, yes, I am. <laughs> Who told me? <laughs> you know, so I don't know how that how that all started, but um, word had gotten around in some way. Um, so I was definitely people would definitely take me as yeah, I was definitely more one of the more conservative. And there was a when I was there, there was a, a certain among the students, uh, there were quite a few conservative folk, conservative-ish uh, folk, um, and. Um, even among the professors at the time, we had a number of, I would say, you know, maybe moderately conservative professors. Um, we had a couple of New Testament professors who I thought probably would be considered sort of broad evangelical kind of guys, and they were really good. Um, we had uh, uh, Dr. Parsinius, who's a, a New Testament. He's Greek Orthodox. Um, he was very solid. He was very solid on a lot of on a lot of things, and I thought I uh, learned a lot from him. Uh, you know, and I think that Princeton, what Princeton has going for it, at least at the time that I was there, was sort of, you know, they're very much into Bart, um, into Carl Bart, uh, as we sort of say, Saint Bart, uh, at uh, at Princeton, and Bart does have, you know, if you're if your options are like Schleiermacher and you know, Schleiermacher or uh, the death of God theology or Charles, not Charles Taylor. Um, oh, what's his name? He teaches at Princeton. I forget his name. Mark, Mark Taylor. 
uh, Mark Taylor, um, who is very much, uh, I think he even writes in sort of what they call a theology. Um, and I remember one professor, say, uh, Bruce McCormick, actually, you know, don't sue me, Bruce, for saying this. Uh, but I'm pretty sure one of our classes is like, yeah, pretty much Mark's view of God is like it's atheistic at the end of the day. Um, but nevertheless, uh, if you had a choice, uh, that's what I'm saying, between these things and Karl Barth, right? You'd go with Karl Barth, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So that's that sort of colors it, you know? But even Barth has got some got some weirdness, I, I think. And um, yeah. You know, well, I was, it's interesting because I, as you were talking about, you know, going, going to Princeton and, and going to Calvin, and eventually I'm going to want you to kind of contrast the, the two seminaries a little bit, maybe. <laughs> but uh, I was, I was thinking about um, Bovink, um, Herman Bovink intentionally um, went to, went to Leiden, which mm-hmm. was more of a, a liberal seminary. Um, and he did it because he wanted to be able to engage with their arguments and hear the arguments coming from them. And he felt like that was going to equip him more fully for yeah. for ministry and be, to be able to have like a winsome answer. Yeah. And uh, and I know some people get really nervous about that and think, well, maybe we're going to lose you or maybe you're going to kind of go off the deep end. But um, I don't know. Did you feel like that helped equip you to be able to answer um, some of the objections or do you feel like you spent most of your seminary kind of trying to argue for orthodoxy or, or how did you kind of feel throughout your seminary? Uh, I think that, well, one, I should say, I should preface that and say that, you know, there were some people, some CRC folk who went to uh, Princeton uh, and they came out, uh, they, they either joined the RCA because they felt like they could more easily fit in there um, some of them remained in the Christian Reformed Church. <laughs> um, we can get into that later. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I would say that um, it was helpful. Yes, I did. Well, part of the reason why I went to Princeton was for a very similar reason. I wanted to know what the other side sort of thought uh, and uh, to sort of get it from the horse's mouth and to really uh, engage with it. So that was that was important for me. Um, was it always the best, rep- the question I'd ask is, was it always the best representation of, of their view or of the side that they, you know, were a part of? And that I'm not so sure. I mean, there was, I think that, uh, um, well, I, pers- maybe that's a matter of, 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 uh, personal conviction as well, that I make that judgment. For example, there was one class I took near the end of my seminary, uh, period at Princeton that was called, uh, I think it was like Biblical Theology for Ministry, right? Uh, and a bunch of us students, and basically what we would do is we would ta- tackle big topics like women in office, or speaking in tongues, or baptizing babies, uh, or homosexuality, or abortion, and things like that. And the, the, the each, we were divided into different groups to ta- tackle each of these issues, and the purpose was to analyze a certain number of texts, bring that back to the group, and provide, okay, these are what we think the texts say, Uh, this is what we think should be the theological conclusion, and then here's how we would respond in a pastoral context. Well, when it came to things like women in office or the matter of 
uh, same-sex relationships. The conversations from the, the more liberal members of the, of the group uh, tended to be <laughs> along the lines of, yeah, we know that Paul says this in like 2 Timothy chapter 2, but Paul was just wrong. So <laughs> just, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, Paul was just wrong. So let's just ignore it. You know, it's just, or like, I think that was sort of the, uh, that was sort of the take on Romans 1. The basic take on Romans 1 when it came to, in that context was, yeah, we know that that's what Paul says, but Paul was just a, Paul was just a, a, a person of his time. And uh, now we know better. Uh, mm -hmm. So, and I think that uh, that, uh, I would think that some of the better, some of the better uh, progressive, if you will, or revisionist or however you want to, however they want to style themselves, um, people um, will have, will, will want to say, no, 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 we can't just discard, right, these entire yeah. sections of scripture because they make us feel uncomfortable, right? We have to have some kind of theological rationale um it can't just be a matter of taste if you will yeah. um and uh so so uh but then again you know so that's one ex type of experience but another type of experience was you know i had bruce mccormick and uh um you know he he did have uh we had a, I had a whole class on friedrich schleiermacher with him and then he taught a class on the reformed confessions and uh so that i felt was more um, helpful uh, and and instructive. Uh, that was yeah. good. Um, although I should say, I should say that uh, Bruce and I got along really well in the Schleiermacher class. But when we went to the Reformed Confessions class, <laughs> we we were not on the same page and, <laughs> uh, because his. I mean, you know, he sort of follows Karl Barth's sort of uh, approach to the Confessions, which is sort of like, here's what the Confessions say. This is why the confessions are wrong or inadequate, and this is how Karl Barth solves the problem. You know, that's sort of the the solution. Mm. And so I was sort of the I was the uh, the advocate for the for the tradition in that class. And so there was one day when we had we had been going back and forth for numerous days, and he had just started to, he had just started lecturing. And you know, people have their thinking faces, you know, and sometimes their thinking faces are like I don't know, very. I don't know how you'd put it. Uh, I don't know a nice way to put it. In any case, he looks up at me and he slams his fist on the ground, on the desk. And he's like, "Sir, I just started." Because <laughs> I guess I had I had been looking at him like with a very like a deep frown and a yep. furrowed brow. You know, he's like, "I've just started. Give me a chance." <laughs> and, I, uh, I have a similar thinking face. My wife tells me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, actually, I have had people. Like when I first got here at Door, some of the members of my congregation. So we had this thing in the evening service where we would, I would give like a catechism sermon, and then they would have an opportunity to ask me questions about it. Um, and I had an elder come up to me after one of these ser uh, sermons, one of these times after the service, and he said, "You know, are you? I know this could just be the way that your face works, but it seems that like." You're not actually angry, are you? It's like, no, no, I'm not angry with you. It's like, just, it's just, it's, it's just the way it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
So what was it like then um, doing your, you know, your year of penance at, uh, at Calvin seminary then I, I was interesting because you took reformed confessions at Princeton, but part of the EPMC is also taking the reformed confessions as well. Right. So that might be, that might show some of the contrast or, or what was it like moving from Princeton to, to Calvin for a year? Um, well, I didn't, I, so I, I did all that online. So I did the whole, oh, okay. I was part of, I think I was the first cohort, maybe the second to do it all online. And, um, for, and I didn't have to do it a whole year. They, they've shrunk it down to a semester Yeah. Uh, at this point. Uh, you're right. But I did take, I did take a class on the reformed confessions at Calvin. And, uh, I mean, I think that there was, I think there was a different attitude towards them at Calvin. I think there was a bit more of a, um, a bit more of a, these are not just historical documents kind of approach. Uh, these are, uh, we have to engage with the theology here. Um, this theology is normative in some way, right? I think that that's clearly the case. Um, that having been said, I thought that, some of the readings that we did, and I don't want to be a, you know, mean or anything of that nature, but like um, one of the books that we had to read for that class was uh, A Place to Stand by um, Cornelius Planinga. And sometimes Cornelius would say things that I just thought were, like, for example, on the doctrine of divine simplicity uh, in Belgian Confession Article 1. You know, his, his comments were two sentences long. There's nothing in the Bible about this doctrine, so we're not going to go over it, <laughs> period. <laughs> Off he goes. Really? Uh, yeah. Or my other favorite one was when he when we got to ecclesiology, and I uh, forget the particular article. I think it might be article uh, 32 or 33, where they're talking about um, church officers and talks about how... Um, the, at the very end, it says, you know, you need the church needs to hold the pastors and the elders in a special high regard for the for the work that they do and not be grumpy with them. Right. And trust them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so every in other words, everything that people's really struggle to do, uh, which tells you, by the way, that this was a problem even in the 16th century. But yeah. um, and so he had this question about because the church was going through the denomination was sort of going through the and of course he published this back in the late 80s. So. Maybe he was, you know, thinking farther ahead. But at the time, the church was working through, you know, what are we going to do with deacons? Are they going to serve at synod, classes, etc.? And uh, he said something along the lines of, you know, why didn't why didn't Debray uh, mention deacons here? You know, why didn't Debray? And well, Neil, I I think that the reason he didn't mention deacons is because he was a Presbyterian. <laughs> you know, he had a very Presbyterian approach to understanding church government, uh, and uh, but Cornelius's solution was something along the lines of maybe maybe he had to write this in a hurry, <laughs> oh, so so he forgot the deacons. I was like, yeah, I don't think he was in a hurry. <laughs> I don't think it was. That doesn't sound like. I hope I'm not misrepresenting him, but that was the way it came across to me. And so let's just say like there was a tad bit of, um, there was a tad bit, uh, a lack of seriousness. There was a certain, there was, 
this is sort of the issue in the in part you know we have different attitudes towards the confessions even within the christian reformed church and i think mm -hmm. that this is one of those cases where i clearly was well from my perspective i was coming from a more uh, a more confessionalist kind of approach and i think that perhaps perhaps uh uh president planning uh in that case was coming from a of, of a slightly different an approach to the yeah. to the confessions yeah and i think that's probably part of just uh something we've talked about a few times on the podcast is this pendulum swing of a generation and i think planning as part of a generation that was reacting to maybe too hard of a confessionalist kind of point of view like this is it listen to it no matter what and they were trying to swing the pendulum the other way yeah and say like well let's just you know these are helpful and um right. you know and kind of different yeah they just softened the authority of the confessions because they were kind of reacting feeling like it was too strong um pushed on them you know and so i think planning as part of a generation that was trying to say let's just chill out a little bit yeah, I think I think that's that's fair. And you know what? That was to be to be fair. I think that was one of the one of the I forget who it was who someone came up with a came out with a book on Bobbing recently, um, entitling and entitled it "Modern and Orthodox." Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that if there was a description of what I would like the Christian Reformed Church to be, that would probably be about it. Um, like you can't, we, it's important to be orthodox, right? But you can't completely, you cannot ignore, right? Or just dismiss or straw man uh, the, the modern uh, world in which we, which we live, right? And I think that the way I'm interpreting what you're saying is to say that there may have been a bit of, let's just, if we ignore it, if we just ignore the world, then we won't, then it won't be a problem. Uh, and I think that that, but then people growing up were like, no, actually I have, you know, this is the world I live in. I have to, you have to teach me, how do I live in this world? How do I yeah. think about these issues? And I think that it's completely fair to, to want to have that open dialogue about, okay, how are we going to do that? And that's all great. I think the, you, but as I said, we still want it to be a modern and orthodox. Right? Yes. Amen. <laughs> and I sort of feel like we got to. We got a little ways um, off the beaten path a little bit in that regard. I mean, and I don't, yeah, but so. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I think that uh, that pendulum swing swung too far. And, and it's what's kind of hurting us now mm -hmm. is that we've got a, a generation who's looks way too lightly on the confessions and holds them in too little of regard and, and uh and a lot of people who don't know them yeah. I, I mean a lot of church leaders who don't who don't know the confessions and that's uh that's not good for us no. um in no. the future no i agree i mean it, at least being and and just not being like that's the thing that was disturbing to me about planning his comments when it came to like the doctrine of divine simplicity or the issue of presbyterian church government in the belgic confession um, there was just a, a, it was just, it was, it was a lack of knowledge. It seemed to me a lack of appreciation for the, for the, the theological tradition, you know, that out of which that confession arose and in which it had been born for the last 
500 years now. Right. Or yeah. More. Well, and, and I mean, it, it's, it is not like Guido Debray just threw that thing together. I mean, oh, no. let's, let's be honest. As he wrote it, he knew most likely he was going to die because of him writing that right he knew that this document was going to at least put his life in danger um so you're not just gonna whip that thing together yeah yeah and uh um, no you're gonna make sure it's carefully done it's well thought out it's accurately representing what you're saying you're looking at every word and i'm pretty sure too that i remember reading somewhere i don't remember where that he also sent the belgic to calvin and said ask Calvin, Hey, Calvin, look over this and tell me like, if I'm missing anything or if, if I need to reframe stuff and Calvin gave it the stamp of approval and sent it back to him. And so, um, if you're sending it out to other theologians to double check your work, it's not like you're whipping this thing together and firing it off. Yeah. Calvin had his opportunity to say, I forgot the deacons. You know, it's like, uh, or, ah, this doctrine of divine simplicity, what is that doing there? Oh, you're yeah. those Greeks back into our system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Calvin was like one of the hardest, like when you read through the Institutes, he says, we shouldn't talk about anything that scripture doesn't talk about. We shouldn't go beyond scripture over and over and over again. So if, if simplicity was a doctrine that was going beyond scripture, Calvin would have said, uh, let's rethink this. Let's rethink this. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it sort of so shows you that the, the purpose of this doc, document was he was setting up, he was helping to establish reformed churches, and he wanted this to be in communion with the other reformed churches in the continent. Uh, and so that's why he sends it, you know, to Calvin is to make sure that, okay, are we going to be able, are we going to be able to enjoy fellowship with one another? Uh, and when you were, tr- when you're trying to do that, common sense would seem to indicate that you, you take a bit more care and concern uh, about how you word things and what you say. Yeah, exactly. Well, we've already kind of begun to talk about, obviously, I would assume you would say our confessions are one of the strengths of the Christian Reformed Church. Um, would you want to elaborate on that? And then just you can roll right from that too. And what other strengths have you seen in the Christian Reformed Church? Uh, so are the confessions a strength? Yeah, I think that the, um, I think they definitely are. I think that, um, you know, confessions, apart from the fact that, apart from the fact that if you read the pastoral epistles in particular, um, you know, the pattern of sound words, um, and, uh, you know, I'm preaching through first Timothy here at door and, you know, Paul in, in, he does this somewhat in other letters, but in first Timothy, he talks a lot about the faith. Right and and wanting Timothy to there's definitely an apostolic understanding of of this is the faith and I think that um, the confessions are helpful to us in that they sort of provide us with sort of a summary right and obviously they come out of a historical period where certain things are under under contention and so they they tend to touch on certain things other than rather than others uh, but nevertheless there was an attempt especially in something like the Belgic Confession I mean uh, to to uh, claim uh, the, the, the heritage of the universal church, right? Going all the way back to the beginning and saying, no, we're, um, we are part of the true church and confessing what Christians have you know, presumably always believed. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for part two of our conversation with Cedric Parcells. 
Until then, don't forget this is Christ's church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.